When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm joined here with Adam, and we have really exciting news. Our first theme song, Loverman, comes from one of my good friends who Adam will soon introduce, but I just want to give you the background. This song is actually from 1941, and it was a jazz song written by Jimmy Davis, Roger Ram Ramirez, and James Sherman, and famously performed by Billie Holiday. But Adam, for our theme song, who created the new rendition? Yeah, um, so the new rendition is co-created by Anne-Sophie Anderson, uh, who's a violinist, and Megan Ames, who's a vocalist, featuring Ashley Miller on clarinet and Mikhail Damani on piano. And if you know the original Billie Holiday version, you'll probably think, well, that's it. That's the high watermark. But this is a really great, it's a really great number. So we, we expect you'll be pleased to hear it as well. Yeah, and Sophie, that's how I refer to my friend, got her doctorate in um, music performance and violin at Stony Brook a few years ago. So thank you, Sophie. Thank you, Megan, for allowing us to use your rendition. Um, soon you'll hear the clip that we chose, but Adam really wants to announce the title of this episode. So go ahead, Adam. What is the title of this exciting book promotion? Um, so we're calling it the closet in the library um, because as you know, a lot of the times the, the queerness of an author or an entire queer author gets shunted into a sort of closet of history, right? Um, and so you grow up hearing like, oh, just to use our favorite example, hearing, oh, captain, my captain. And when lilacs last in the dooryard bloom and never getting to hear the erotic stuff. And the and and the exciting stuff, you know. So so you so they 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 amputate that part of Whitman to to make the rest a little more palatable. So one of what Broadview what Broadview Press has done is they've put those voices front and center, the queer voices, the POC voices, um, the Jewish voices. Yeah. yeah so you're going to hear us talk with the editors. Um, the main editors, Jason Rudy and Kate Flint. We have our first ever book release. So that is so exciting. And we can't wait for you all to hear our interview and also check out all the resources on our website where we have a link to the Broadview Press Victorian era anthology. It comes out on July 13th. Um, yeah. And we have a lot of links to Jason Rudy and Kate Flint, and hopefully we'll have future collaborations with Broadview Press. Um, and Adam and I and now. I would, well, I would say good job. Wait, wait, wait. I would say um, good job to Andrew for, no, 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 this is important. Good job to Andrew for getting Broadview Press on our show 
And from Andrew's very cryptic hints, I can tell this is the first of many talks with authors about new books. And I'm really, I'm really stoked for those conversations. Yes, and thank you to all the bookstores who I've been reaching out to who are going to feature this episode. So hopefully soon we'll actually have bookstore releases as well. Um, our, our community continues to grow. We thank our team, Mary and Erica. Thank you so much for all you do. Thanks to our listeners and readers. And if you are a writer or a bookstore who wants to connect with us and engage our magnificent speaking voices in the cause of your publications, please contact us. You know our website. We've got the ivory, sorry, we've got ivorytowerboilerroom.com with all of the links to Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, email. Um, and you can get in touch with us that way. We hope you enjoyed our new theme song. And here's the team. Hi, my name is Andrew Rimby. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I am one of the co-hosts of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, hi, my name is Adam Katz. My pronouns are he, him. I'm also one of the co-hosts and the editor of the website. Hi, I'm Erica Grimay. My pronouns are she, her, hers, or they, them, theirs, and I am the media manager for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, I'm Mary DePippi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am the chief contributor for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We hope you enjoy our episode. Well, hi, Adam. Um, we're really excited to have with us both Jason Rudy and Kate Flint, who are on the editing team. I know they'll explain more about um, how they served on the editorial team for the Broadview Press, but there is a new edition of the Victorian era anthology, which you heard me uh, just have so much excitement about because I have the older edition. Um, You've been positively vibrating. I have, and I'm it's so cute. ready. I want we're it in print. <laughs> we're allowed to have nice things, it turns out. It is true. Well, welcome both Jason and Kate. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, for the invitation. Yeah, so. Terrific to be here, thank you. Um, Kate, you had explained your role with the anthology and Broadview Press broadly. Could you explain to our listeners maybe how long you've been uh, sitting with all of these ideas from the anthology? So I was asked way back in about 2003, I think, if I would become part of a team for the new Broadview anthology of um, 
English literature, British literature. And this is a multi-volume thing that goes from the earliest days of Old English right through to as contemporary as we can afford to be, because once you get into living writers, permissions become super expensive. And I was asked if I would take particular charge of the 19th century volume together with Barry Qualls, who was a colleague of mine at that time at Rutgers. And at that time, um, Jason was a terrific, just about to be um, newly minted PhD candidate also at Rutgers, which kind of ages us both enormously. And it was, it was enormous fun at that point, having the opportunity to choose what seemed to Barry and myself to be really key elements in Victorian literature. And I think that we both of us had our own particular specialties in that Barry is somebody who has done a lot of work on fiction, but particularly on literature and religion. And Barry seemed to cover a lot of the spots that I didn't cover, like Thomas Carlyle. And my own interests are in fiction, but I'm also, as well as being a cultural and literary historian, I'm an art historian. And so that meant that a lot of my choices headed towards stuff that were visually oriented. So Barry was more philosophical than I, and I was much more kind of material and visual than, than he. And we complemented each other terrifically. And we saw this through two separate incarnations. And then Barry, having retired, thought that he perhaps should step aside and we should bring somebody on board who was um, of a younger generation from us. And so Jason um, came to our mind absolutely immediately, to mine especially, because Jason has got this terrific outreach into um, the colonial reach of Britain in the 19th century and into um, the literature of empire, but also because Jason, I think of as being a poetry guy. And however much I enjoy and work on poetry, um, I am not somebody who has Victorian poetry coursing through their veins like I think that Jason does. And so when we were invited to redo the third edition, it's great. It was like 16, 17 years on from its first um, sort of collaging together of the stuff. And so we could think what matters now. And so I'm going to hand over to Jason at this point to say a bit more about how he came on board and how he has really helped shape and um, expand the reach, not just of individual pieces, but really shifted the, um, the slant, the emphasis of the whole volume. Yeah, it's, it, this has been such a joy uh, to work with Kate and the whole team at Broadview. I, I've been a fan of Broadview for, you know, since I was in graduate school and for many reasons, one of which is that they do such fantastic work with 19th century poetry, but also have always included 
writers that often don't appear in other anthologies. So the work that Kate and I have been helping with with the third edition is, is really just a, um, a following through on fundamental values that I think have always been present with Broadview. And it's what's drawn me to the press over the years. So um, my recent scholarship has been largely focused on British colonial spaces. And currently I'm doing quite a lot with indigenous literature and culture. And so it was, it was a thrill to have a team at Broadview that was receptive to, to, to this larger impulse and to really want to, to say, well, what, what will not just students today want and need, but thinking ahead through the next decade, what are, where are we headed as a field and what are our classrooms going to be looking like and a lot of the work that we've done for this anthology is um, addressing current needs, but also anticipating the, the you know, what's to come. Yeah, thank you both. Um, well, I know in, hopefully this spurs, especially what Jason and Kate, you've talked about of what you s looked at and you saw there was a void of needing to fill with especially more marginalized voices. Um, and I know there was a recent article that I've actually cited when I had a um, article on Whitman that just came out about um, bringing in a queer of color critique. And it was uh, Nasser Mufti's Hating Victorian Studies Properly, which um, I know in Victorian studies is a splash and um, has been making the waves. But I thought there was a quote in the preface that Adam and I, luckily enough, we did get uh, proofs to read. Um, that just says there's a focus now on reflecting, quote, recent developments in scholarship, especially on gender, sexual orientation, and race. And I was really struck by that. So I'm wondering, oh, what does that mean? Or like, what do these voices look like, maybe? Yeah, it's, it's very concisely said. Do you want to lead off this time? Well, um, so I, I can respond to the specific question, but I, I maybe just to say first, the broader context is this, the moment we're in right now is I think particularly exciting for 19th century literary studies. Um, and the, this new edition is a, is a piece of that, but we have special issues of um, Victorian studies, the, the undisciplining Victorian studies issue edited by Rajani Chatterjee, Alicia Morales Christoph and Amy Wong. We have uh, Widening the 19th Century in Victorian Literature and Culture, edited by Sukanya Banerjee, Ryan Fong, and Helena Michi. And, and then this Undisciplining the Victorian Classroom um, platform, which is a website of interviews and syllabi and uh, really kind of reimagining what we all can do as teachers. Um, and that's being edited by Pearl Bauer, Ryan Fong, Sophia Su, and Adrian Wisnecki. Um, th there's just an extraordinary amount of energy that is reshaping this field, certainly when it comes to scholarship, but also in teaching. So um, I'll, I'll offer that as a larger context. And maybe Kate, do you wanna um, say a bit? Well, yeah, I'll jump on that because I think this has been 
an enormous spur to the kind of work that we were doing in trying to expand the base of our authors. And also one of the great things about putting together an anthology is that you're looking for different pathways that people might be able to construct. And so somebody who really wants to teach a course on um, race, empire, and colonialism in relation to Victorian Britain could use our anthology. But at the same time, we don't want to throw out a lot of pieces that people are already familiar and comfortable with teaching. Because that way we would lose, I think, a lot of people who've come to rely on this anthology. What I would love it is if those people who feel that they're quite comfortable with teaching, let us say, their um, class on the dramatic monologue, first person um, voiced poems, become less comfortable. And therefore that they stir up their own thinking, that they have the opportunity to put something really well known like Robert Browning's Porphyria's Lover alongside um, let's say a dramatic monologue by the um, First Nations poet Pauline Johnson, Tekahionawake. And if you're putting together um, a familiar sounding voice with somebody who mightn't be familiar at all, but you're seeing how they use some of the same forms of address, some of the same constructions, to achieve quite different ends and to achieve um, a manipulation of the reader or the hearer. Um, so you can rethink what you thought that you knew already about Victorian literature because of the pathways, because of the juxtapositions, because of the different voices that we've put in here. And I want to go back to just stressing my real commitment to giving these different voices, whether they be of people of color or whether they be from an LGBTQ community, if you can call it a community in the 19th century, at least people who were speaking to one another through their writings. Um, I want to add to that working class voices, I want to add to that regional voices. I want not just to decolonize um, English literature, but I want to demetropolize it. However much London was a center um, in the 19th century and however much it was a, a publishing center, a social center and so on, it was but one um, place where people were doing their reading and where they were thinking about and referring to. And so to my mind, England, the United Kingdom, Great Britain is already a really divided, diverse community of voices who aren't necessarily heard by each other. Um, and I want to see how they get imbricated by voices that, or implicated with voices that are outside the actual um, land territory of the, the British Isles, 
that are always in dialogue with them. And so, you know, the whole impetus towards um, decolonizing our syllabi and rethinking what we do in the classroom by providing this enormous range of different texts and by offering up some suggested pathways as to how people could link different things by theme, by style, by genre, by period, whatever it might be. This is giving people a whole new toolkit with which to approach the 19th century. Hmm. Really nice idea. I wanna follow up on that if you don't mind. Um, so uh, just a, a bit of context. My, my reading is, I think at its core, pretty basic, right? In that, in that I read because I want to experience that tingle down my spine when I, when I find something really great. And I was thinking recently that like one of the things that did that for me is, is the like, in memoir, in mem, memo, how do you pronounce that? In memoriam? Yeah. yeah. I can usually pronounce words in English. This is a new experience for me. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> Uh, the 50th section, right? Be near me when my light is low, when the blood creeps and the nerves prick and tingle and the heart is sick, um, give, gives me that sensation. So I, I, would love, I would love to know from, from either of you, um, as you've been adding works to the book, what new work, what work that, that would have been overlooked because it's by a brown person or a queer person or both is, is going to give me that sensation. Like, what should I read next? What, 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 have, what candle has been under a bushel? That's a, such a great question. And I can enthusiastically say that you will have that experience if you read, for example, um, Toru Dutt, who is a, a, a poet um, writing from Calcutta in the, um, 19th, in the later part of the 19th century. She visited Europe with her family. Um, she learned French, English. Um, towards the end of her life, she was learning Sanskrit and she wrote poems in English. So Our Castle Arena Tree is one of them. It's it's a stunning multi-layered work that scholars don't really agree on the like what the politics are fundamentally and that's part of what makes it so compelling is you know it, it's a rich work because it's nuanced and has enough ambiguity to to get people talking I, when I teach it in class I I divide my students um, to argue different interpretations. Say the name of the poet and the poem together. Sure, it's Toru Dutt, D-U-T-T, and the poem is Our Casuarina Tree. So we have that poem and then a few sonnets by Dutt in the anthology. Um, I would say that reading Mary Prince uh, gives me that kind of a response because it shows Mary Prince was an enslaved woman uh, from the Caribbean who came to England um, with her enslavers and uh, became a free woman on reaching the United Kingdom because slavery was uh, outlawed there at the time, um, by the time Prince arrived. Um, 
and then she uh, collaborated with abolitionists in London to have her, her life story written. And that is actually the first text of the anthology. So, you know, it's part of this larger project of, um, you could use the word undisciplining or decentering what we tend to think of as 19th century British literature, but you open up the Broadview third edition of Victorian literature and the first text you find is written by a black woman. So you come out swinging, so to speak. Exactly, and, and that was an intentional move on our part because we want students, we want, our, we want classrooms to not to have the option really <laughs> of um, going at it um, in the same old way. It's just, your question really for me brings to mind the, 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 the degree to which anthologies have shaped the field. And if, if what we're looking at are anthologies whose logic is coming from the early to mid 20th century, that's, that's something very different from the moment we're living in now. And, and it's not actually very reflective of the British 19th century. And this is part of what Kate was getting at. It's the, the work that we are doing as editors is not um, reshaping the 19th century to reflect 21st century values. In fact, it's, it's, it's opening up a more honest 19th century that was filled with many different voices and had a vibrant print and visual culture that was far more interesting than what our 20th century anthologies have reflected to us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And I'm also, you know, very glad that Jason just there mentioned the, uh, the richness of the visual culture, because one of the things that we've tried to do with this volume is to think what particular um, visual works um, of all kinds might accompany the written text. So these can be paintings, but they can certainly also be illustrations, they can be cartoons and, and so on. And I was having time to reflect whilst Jason was talking now, who would I, who would I single out? Who would I, who would I turn to in this as a kind of a new, fresh, possibly tingling voice? And the as, as Jason went on, I kept thinking of, of different voices <laughs> and thinking there is so much here. And I think that I already mentioned Teka uh, Hionwake, uh, Pauline Johnson, who is so fascinating coming from um, a mixed um, First Nations and white background in Canada, but also coming over to England and being shaped by life in London salons in the um, 1890s. She uh, provides a real example how she could shift her own voice from borrowing the impassioned tones of, um, as she calls it, a, an Indian wife who is witnessing massacres at the hands of the British to a poem about the um, painter Alma Tadema which gets us to think about um, the presence of the, of the naked and the nude in British art in the late 19th century. 
But I think somebody who I'd want to single out would be Amy Levy for a range of reasons. Um, Amy Levy was Jewish. And I do think that one of the things that we have quietly done in this volume is to expand how we think about religion in the 19th century. I think for so long it was kind of faith and doubt, which yes, that's still there as a, a heading in the introduction, but for so long it really was concerned with debates within the Anglican, what we might think of as the Episcopalian over here church, um, and it was concerned with high church, low church, um, and so on. So to include a number of Jewish writers actually expands our sense of religious, cultural, and social diversity in England. Amy Levy wrote a couple of novels, which Broadview also bring out, Reuben Sachs, which focuses on Jewish people in London, and The Romance of a Shop. I love The Romance of a Shop because it really deals with the later 19th century um, art world, especially these four sisters who set up a photographic studio together. Um, but she was remarkable for a lot. She was a lesbian. She was a pretty unrequited lesbian a lot of the time. And one of the saddest poems, or the most kind of heart, how shall I put it, the most heart-wrenching poems to me in the volume is her Tulali. Tulali is about a woman who sees her big crush coming up into the, the British Museum, probably going to work in the British Library. And she thinks, oh, wow, great, she's coming, this is amazing. And the object of her affections, desires, and the rest of it just doesn't recognize her. And there's a way in which, obviously, a poem like In Memoriam, or there are so many tragic poems about death in this volume that you can put together a really um, heartrending set of um, melancholy. But this is one of those poems that really cuts one because it is so easy just to see oneself now or then in this position of, you know, one's um, hopeful inamorata just disappearing past one into the library. And I think that one of the things I also find quite interesting about this poem is that it is sort of a humorous poem. I mean, it's bittersweet, but I think that we've tried to include a lot of humor in this volume. And of course, humor is one means by which a lot of women poets in the later 19th century tried to diffuse their seriousness. And so we have a number of poets like Mathilde Blind, like Constance Naden, who are actually taking on board some of the really big scientific issues at the time. And again, our anthology allows one to um, form a kind of a scientific track through it. But they, they write them in an accessible, humorous, um, light verse kind of way, which actually disrupts um, our normal categories of Victorian poetry. Because if you're talking about evolution, you're talking about trilobites, you're talking about work that's being done in a lab, you're clearly knowledgeable and yet 
you're putting this across in a very accessible sort of way. Partly that is deflecting what they are doing as women writers. If you're not going to take me seriously, I might as well write like verse. And so I'm going to get you to take like verse seriously Wait, too. What did you say this was? Because that reminds me enormously of Margaret um, Cavendish. <laughs> Constance, Constance Nathan and Mathilde um, Blind, B-L-I-N-D. Um, well, and I just like, as a transatlantic scholar, um, who, if you, the listeners can't see us, unless we do release this um, as a treat, I have an Oscar Wilde shirt, um, but I work on Wilde and Whitman when Wilde comes to America in Camden. Stand up a bit so we can see the, sure, so we can sure. see it properly. There but it go. also has this quote, some cause happiness wherever they go, others whenever they go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I'm so glad, Kate, that you mentioned Amy Levy because I had included her on my oral exams in 2016. Um, and I also like pairing her with Emma Lazarus with their homoerotic poetry um, in the same way that I like doing, um, you know, Whitman and Wilde or Swinburne and Whitman, like there's so many of these nice pairings, which is why I'm so excited about this edition because when I had done my oral exams, the listeners know, I it was in that time of before undisciplining the Victorian classroom where I had to create a separate Jewish literature list and a separate LGBTQ or broadly queer list. So, and it's, it's a byproduct, but it was also sad in a way that they seemed even more stigmatized and not part of the canon. Absolutely. Um, so I'm excited to hear how central um, Amy Levy, Mary Prince, um, who I'm also thinking would be nice to pair with Harriet Jacobs. Um, yeah, that it's so exciting to see where um, Victorian studies, like you said, an anthology is your first, exactly. sometimes your first, um, for me, even before delving into my PhD work, when I went to my public library in high school, it was the anthology of Victorian literature that I first gravitated towards, right? That's how a lot of people learn about these periods and how exciting that this is now, you know, will be available. Yeah, um, and, and I can I can attest to the fact that the, um, the, uh, the anthologies that I learned from when I was an undergrad, I often wanted to teach from when I was a graduate student with a literature class. Um, but I'm, I'm all, so, so that, that's, a, that's a cycle of trauma all of its own because that, that means that the, the people who aren't in the Penguin Book of English Verse um, stay in the shadows. I'm, I'm personally excited that you included a generous um, amount of Rabindranath Tagore, because when I wanna make my writing students cry, which I don't always, but you know, you wake up with a mood, I, I, I'm, I have them read Tagore. Mm. Like that, that to me, like, and when I wanna make myself cry, I read Tagore. <laughs> I think I'm someone who often uh, stays away from poetry because it makes me cry. Oh, I'm talking about the novels and the short stories. I, I've barely, barely touched his poetry, but I've, I've read, uh, just recently, I've just been on a kick, so. 
I can jump in. I, I just one of the other governing principles was that we didn't want to have we didn't want to divide up our our writers and say, well, here's a section where we have writers of color. Here's a section where we have. So there, we we were really committed to, to to thinking about intersectionality throughout this volume. So one example would be in our in our section on religion and society, one of the poets that we include uh, is Egbert Martin, who's uh, a, a very prominent poet in Guyana um, that you, you know, brings an important and distinct voice to that section on religion and society. Um, you know, so we're looking at, at reconfiguring, uh, re reconfiguring um, the, the kind of categories and the, the people that you might imagine you would encounter in those categories. Um, and at the same time, we wanted to highlight writers on their own strengths. So, um, so Tekahai Wake has her own section, as does Toru Dutt, right? These are figures that we wanted to really, um, you know, not just put into a, a subsection, um, but, but, but draw attention to um, in their own rights. Yeah, I noticed that that Tagor and Dutt are not in the same, are not consecutive, even though they were both living in Kolkata in the late 19th century. It's, yeah. it's an interesting choice. Certainly. Yes, and I think that we we really didn't want to um, segregate anybody right. Right. in you order were, to make them. You were uh, putting them in their categories as intellectuals, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely is not a tokenizing project, which is such a breath of fresh air. Um, that you know, like when I talk about what happened with my exams, it's not on the examiners; it's on the system of what Victorian studies and also. I mean, American studies, I'm sure they're having, I know they're having the same kinds of conversations um, that just even saying that Amy Levy, that she has a queerness in her poetry, that that's part of the anthology or even, I mean, I instantly draw towards the sexual transgression context section because like know, that's my, that's where my <laughs> eyes go, but um it's wonderful to see that you don't need to have supplemental anthologies. Like, I mean, the bookshelf that exists behind me is where I have at least 10 anthologies to try to capture each of these voices, but, right. And one anthology, I mean, I'm sure some will say we'll never have all the voices, but I do think this anthology does such a wonderful job of even having, if you could maybe tell our listeners, it has a digital, section I know of, um, like even, I think it includes a few novels um, that couldn't be included in the um, physical copy. And that's exciting to even have more material to look to. I mean, there are lots and lots of, of links. Broadview support the anthology with a huge website and with further links from that. And I should also say that for um, professors and instructors who order the anthology as the anthology, they can get it bundled with a number of longer texts as well. So you can, for example, um, order the anthology and two or three novels 
Um, so you could teach the Victorian period in, in different, you know, from different but linked um, physical texts. I think the, the whole question of fiction when you are putting together an anthology is a really tricky one because you find with short stories and luckily in the towards the end of the 19th century in particular there is this real growth of experimental and suggestive and provocative writing in the form of the short story i think people uh, very often try out difficult ideas and conclusive ideas um, try out arguments and don't feel that they need to tie up all the, the loose ends at the end of the, the three volumes um, in a short story. And I'm delighted that we've got a number of those. But longer novels are a real problem. And I should say that I my view about including bits from novels has evolved over the years. The, the very first incarnation of this anthology, I really pushed back against having um, pages, paragraphs that were taken out of context. It was like, you've got to have the whole of Jane Eyre. You've got to have all the part times. How can you just take out, you know, a short section? I've, I've come to, to shift on that one quite a lot because I think, hey, you know, sometimes there are individual scenes which you, which say stuff in a way that really makes a, an impact in its, in its own right. Sometimes you have things that were from the author's point of view, something of a vignette, a, a set piece. And hey, if you really enjoy reading three pages from Jane Eyre, you might want to go and read the whole thing because you, it's like a, a taster. But I do think that one of the problems with teaching the Victorian period when one's putting together a syllabus is to say so many Victorians immerse themselves in really long novels, mm -hmm. whether they read them themselves um, silently, privately, or whether they read them out loud um, in a family circle, whether they read them episodically as we might wait for the next episode of a television drama, um, taking the week to speculate who did, who did what. Um, but reading long-form long fiction is, I think, part of the Victorian reading experience uh, for so very many people, and not just um, within the shores of the, the British Isles, but throughout the, um, throughout the empire, throughout the colonies. And of course, it was fiction as well as poetry that served as an inspiration for writers within those countries, um, sometimes reading in English, but then writing in um, Hindi or writing in their own um, native tongues where they were going to be read by um, people locally. But I wish that we could give even more of a sense of the, the global spread and mutation of Victorian fiction but at least we do try and get a whole range of different types of novelistic writing great point. there now. Mm. I mean, that's a, a series of great points. Um, I don't necessarily envy the Victorians their plague hospitals, but I do envy them their culture of reading out loud. I, 
I only get through the first half before the person I'm reading to goes to sleep. Maybe that's a judgment on me. I can learn from Andrew how to how to emote more. <laughs> well, um, we we on. once uh, drove from New Jersey to New Mexico, reading Bleak House aloud to each other all the way. Wow, horrible! <laughs> Which yeah. was terrific. Oh. Well, and as a native New Jerseyan, I enjoy that <laughs> the trip began <laughs> in Jersey. But um, so many things too. I know I'm not going to stay on that point <laughs> for too long. Uh, uh, everyone knows my um, homegrown fandom, but I really love this idea of just even expanding um, into the supplemental. I'm even thinking as an educator, but even, right, if someone, hopefully anyone listening, they pick up this anthology, I just, um, got the Broadview Press's edition of Dracula that just came out, the new edition, and teach Dracula a lot, but could see, you know, even doing a supplemental Middlemarch or, and I know there is a, a section of Middlemarch that exists in the anthology, um, but yeah, that there's so many options of these pairings, but you can use the anthology as the springboard. Um, I could just also draw attention to two new sections in this edition that I'm really excited about. One is um, a whole section on the new the new women, um, which is new to the third edition. And you know the, thankfully this is something that I, I think a lot of teachers in the period are excited about teaching new women writing. Can you quickly explain to some of our readers who may not be up on the lingo what a new woman is. Sure, it's um, so 1880s and 90s, um, this sense that um, women emerging as having a public face in, in new ways of riding bicycles, maybe smoke, <clears throat> smoking cigarettes, uh, but, but finding, finding a voice in, in public speech and writing that was distinct from what might have been possible before. And, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, and it, and it was a very political moment for women to be taking the stage in this way. Um, and there wasn't agreement about what what those voices should sound like, be like. So, so, you know, so to recourse to a previous example, Amy Levy would be one of these new women. Exactly, exactly. Um, so then we also include a section on nature and the environment, which, you know, um, I can say is someone who teaches 19th century literature, our students care deeply about the moment we're living in and the environment. They are so moved and enthusiastic to realize that some of the questions that we're asking now about the environment were being posed by people like John Ruskin in the 19th century and that someone like um, Gerard Manley Hopkins was writing poems about the devastation of the environment, for example. And, you know, so we tried to capture some of, some of that in a, in a section of its own. I think it'll be, it'll make the volume, um, you, it's one of the many ways the volume offers classrooms a, a, a sense of the relevance of the period for our present. Well, my committee member will be very excited if he's listening, Michael Tandre, who works on the environment. So there, there's a, it's a great uh, niche there. But yeah, even 
I mean, I know, you know, we're going to be wrapping up soon, but if you could maybe just, I had highlighted this note about annotations, like the way you described, and I know Kate had talked about um, including Jewish voices, but there's this moment in the preface that, and I highly recommend anyone who grabs, all of you who grab this anthology in your hand to start in the preface, because it really is a really um, foundational moment of what the anthology's vision is. But you say that you're glossing, to gloss without glossing over. Um, and this is speaking to anti-Semitism, um, but I, I'm sure that also goes into, um, you know, systems of oppression like white supremacy and racism. So I was just curious that just that to gloss without glossing over, it's a really powerful stage. Glossing, glossing in any way, such a hard um, task because it does mean that you're giving interpretation. And on the one hand, you want to give people context and you want to make sure that they understand the context in which particularly a word or a sentence that might seem to us um, racist is actually used, which is not to condone Victorians, uh, but it is to explain that what might be offensive and shocking to us now um, is not necessarily going to have seemed offensive and shocking at the time, which isn't the Victorians fault. It is a mark of the um, evolution of a concern with, with justice and rights and so on. I think you don't want to overburden people in um, when you're glossing something, but to me, you don't want to, you don't want to close down interpretation either. I mean, ours is meant to be a provocative anthology in the best sense of the, the word. I mean, even if you were to take just one section, I mean, Jason was just talking about the nature and the environment one, which I'm also super excited by. You don't want to, in a sense, be telling people what to think about um, the collapse between a human, animal, natural world divide. You want, uh, within the classroom, students to be able to you know, unravel these ideas for themselves. So there's a limit to the amount of, of glossing that I want to include, but I don't want people just herring off down kind of wrong, wrong paths. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and another, another example that comes to my mind is a, um, a letter that was dictated by a man called Benelong, who was one of the first indigenous Australians to learn English and to, to have a, a, a meaningful relationship with the, the, the British. Um, he traveled to London. So he, he dictated a letter to the family that had hosted him while he was in England. Now there are volumes written on Benelong and the complicated cultural differences and politics of, um, of his engagements with, with British invaders to his land, it's not our, we're not aiming to tell that entire history. We want, we want to frame 
his letter so that so that a class can can discuss it and can touch on some of the the ambiguities or contradictions um, that one might glean from it, but we don't we don't want to tell people how to read that letter. It's there as a as an object from history that we can make imperfect sense of. Mm. It's really powerful. It, it would just remind me um, of when I've taught the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, and there is that um, Jewish stage manager character. And my students have come to, well, this seems very anti-Semitic. What do we do with these, wrestling these ideas, right? And that could also be um, uh, it's a way I found for my students and I'm, it, when reading over the anthology, you open those pathways of talking about these problematic moments and the way that anti-Semitism, that there's this history of tropes that are harmful, but it's not, we need to get rid of the picture of Dorian Gray. And I think, um, right, sitting in these contradictions, sitting in these, problematic moments is where um, transcendence of our own ideas and overcoming, or not even overcoming, but trying to figure out why these stereotypes continue and these racist legacies continue. And I think I'm really excited to, well, teach this anthology um, because of those moments um, and that like you said, you start right with Mary Prince. And I think that that's such a significant moment of this is part of the Victorian literary canon. And um, that's a really monumental moment. Yeah. No, it's, it's terrific to be able to start with that. And that, that actually provides, as I think we've really indicated, um, that's real testimony to the fact that the, the Broadview people knew exactly what we meant when we said this is how we wanted to start. And it was like, hey, that's a fabulous idea. Wow. Yeah, it's just, and how many, just so our listeners know, before we wrap up, how many editors were part of the team? Because um, I know it's a pretty, when you look at the acknowledgements list, that, that's a tricky question because um, the, the people who did the choosing are um, Jason and myself and then building on the work that Barry Qualls did. So we take responsibility for the contents and then there's a huge editorial team that does the, the glossing, the fact checking, the little headings and such like. And I would say that our although we've had input at various parts of it on various things, that our kind of um, control lay in the, the ideas and the selections rather than the, um, the granularity of the detail. Um, okay, I, I, want to bring up, I want to bring up something that I noticed in the um, organization of the work that I think is very interesting. So like you were saying, um, the the there's not just an Indian section. There are Indian writers who, for example, who are dispersed throughout the work based on their interests and preoccupations and how they therefore 
um, mesh with other writers who have the same interests and preoccupations. So there is, however, a section called contexts, sexuality and sexual transgression, but that doesn't mean that um, that a, a writer who is who identifies as queer in their in their work, or even who doesn't identify as queer but is yeah. writing, uh, is is under that section. Like you go to the queer section of the book, and there's all the queer writers. No, what it means is that there are sections of that person's uh, writing: a, a poem from John Addington Simmons, a poem from Amy Levy, etc. So that people so that people can see, okay, this is what this is how people were writing about these sorts of relationships at the time, but then the bulk of one of these writers' work might, might be elsewhere in the novel, in the, sorry, in the um, collection. And I think, that, I think that's a really good um, balancing act that yeah, you're and performing I think, there. Yeah, I think that the pair of writers who wrote under the, the name Michael Field are a really good example there. Because yes, you know, they were lovers, they were a part, you know, they were a partnership, but they, and they wrote some very, very explicit love poetry, but they also wrote a great deal that can be thought of as part of a um, aesthetic world, um, the poetry about sculpture or about painting ties in with Oscar Wilde or uh, Vernon Lee, and I realize I've <laughs> brought in two other queer writers, but ties in with Peter, another queer writer. Um, but it shows them to be part of different thought systems, different um, cultural worlds, different cultural spaces. And we don't just think about them or remember them because they were a queer partnership. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything as we wrap up that we haven't, I feel like we've provided such, both of you, thank you, Jason and Kate for providing such nuanced discussions that really, you know, have targeted such an accessible audience. Um, is there anything that you want to bring up before we wrap up? I'll let Jason have the last word. So I will go first and just say, Anybody who is dipping into this, anyone who is teaching it, anybody who's using it in a classroom, allow yourselves to be surprised because we've tried to surprise, to put in some stuff you might never have read before. I've certainly learned through doing some research, putting, putting new stuff into this. And so just enjoy the new and allow that to you know, start shaking up your ideas about what you thought you knew about the Victorian period. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I'll echo that to say, um, you know, all of the fundamentals of what one might think of as the traditional Victorian literature class, they are still there in this anthology. So you can teach your Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Tennyson and, you know, move forward from that. Um, and that's, a, you know, but, but just to echo Kate, the, the, there should be a joyfulness in exploring, um, you know, and what else is out there. And we hope, we, hope, we hope that's a pleasure and we hope students and teachers alike are, are um, kind of 
enjoy the process. Yeah, it's been, it's really, I'll just say also, it's been such a delight collaborating with Kate and with everyone at Broadview. I, you know, this is my, the first edition that I'm a part of in, in this way. And I couldn't be happier with the, um, with the process and with the, the result. I said I'd let Jason have the last word, but I'm going to speak again and just say how wonderful it was working with him and to be working with somebody who is just such a sympathetic and on the ball and knowledgeable with utterly different knowledge from a lot of my own. So Jason, thank you so much for coming on board and being really at the core of this new edition. Well, thank you, it's such a pleasure. Well, thank you to you both. And I um, had to put myself on mute because I have some birds outside on this sunny day who I think uh, have been called by the Victorian poets <laughs> with their excitement. Uh, but thank you both Jason and Kate and our listeners can find um, the Victorian era anthology link um, where you can uh, purchase it. Um, and Definitely you both, I know Adam probably, he would second this so I can speak as the team that any future additions you have of any works you're doing, please, please come back on. We really- Especially if it's Margaret Cavendish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that's Adam's last word. (laughs) Well, thank you both. Um, And um, we can't wait to partner again with Broadview. Okay, we're going to put a bookmark in this. Please continue the conversation with us at our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You'll find our blog there, as well as links to our Twitter, Facebook, email, and our donate button, so you can support what we do here. Thank you for listening. And now here's our theme song, Lover Man, written by Jimmy Davis, Roger Ram Ramirez, and James Sherman in a new rendition co-created by Anne-Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames. I don't know why, but I'm feeling so sad.